thank you very much. Good morning. As um, Duncan said, we are continuing in our Dawn of a Kingdom series. We've been walking through the book of 1 Samuel, um, and if you've been with us over these past weeks, you will know the good news from last week is that finally, after all the waiting, after all the watching, after all the predictions... Israel has a king. But it's all very hush-hush at the moment, and today we're going to be finding out publicly who that king is. And if you're just joining us for the first time, what a week to join. You're going to see the king being announced to everyone, and we'll see how this new king copes with his first big challenge and a very exciting battle. I'm going to read from chapter 10, from verse 17, and then a bit of chapter 11. You can follow on the screen behind me. Now Samuel called the people together to the Lord at Mizpah. And he said to the people of Israel, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I brought up Israel out of Egypt, and I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all the kingdoms that were oppressing you. But today you have rejected your God who saves you from all your calamities and your diseases. And you have said to him, Set a king over us. Now therefore present yourselves before the Lord by your tribes and by your thousands. Then Samuel brought all the tribes of Israel near, and the tribe of Benjamin was taken by Lot, and he brought the tribe of Benjamin near by its clans, and the clan of the Matrites was taken by Lot, and Saul the son of Kish was taken by Lot. But then they sought him, he could not be found. So they inquired again of the Lord, is there a man still to come? And the Lord said, behold, he has hidden himself among the baggage. Then they ran and took him from there. And when he stood among the people, he was taller than any of the people, from his shoulders upward. And Samuel said to all the people, Do you see him whom the Lord has chosen? There is none like him among all the people. And all the people shouted, Long live the king. Then forward to chapter 11. Then Nahash the Ammonite went up and besieged Jabesh-Gilead. And all the men of Jabesh said to Nahash, Make a treaty with us, and we will serve you. But Nahash the Ammonite said to them, On this condition I will make a treaty with you, that I gouge out all of your right eyes, and thus bring disgrace on all Israel. The elders of Jabesh said to him, Give us seven days respite, that we may send messengers throughout the territory of Israel. Then, if there is no one to save us, we will give ourselves up to you. And when the messengers came to Gabeah of Saul, they reported the matter in the ears of the people, and all the people wept aloud. So, welcome to Mizpah, not our most well-known city for us, perhaps, but if you were an Israelite at this time, it was, it was a place of importance, a place for getting things done. Quite a fitting place, then, to announce the new king. You would uh, imagine there were throngs of, of thousands upon thousands, the tribes all gathering together, perhaps children running around as they gathered at Mizpah, distant relatives catching up, seeing one another, as they all came to hear the long-awaited announcement, the king was going to be announced. Amidst the excitement and the buzz, I wonder, though, if some more thoughtful people started to feel a little bit awkward. As the time came for Samuel to announce who the new king was going to be, perhaps some of them started to recollect another time, not long ago, when they were gathered in this very same spot. You see... It was only a few chapters back in chapter 7 when Israel were gathered together here at Mizpah. They were gathered together to to say sorry to God for the mess that they'd made and taking the opportunity of them being gathered there, all of their enemies had come to attack them. 
They'd cried out to God, and God had thundered from heaven and miraculously defeated them. It was a victory place. This was the place where victory happened. God's victory. God had looked after them. God had protected them. Which is a little bit awkward now, as Samuel points out, because they've come to ask for a king. Samuel reminds them in this passage that God hasn't ever been unfaithful to them. God, as their king, has led them out of Egypt. He's protected them from all of their enemies. He's guarded them. He's delivered them from their distresses and from their calamities. God has been a good king. Make no mistake, God has been a faithful king to them. But still the people said, no, we, we want a flesh and blood king, you know, like all the other nations have. And in doing that, we know that they rejected God. Now, I could understand it if God said, fine, you go have your king, I'm off, and abandon them to their inevitable fate of messing it up. Or perhaps he'd destroy them in his anger. But God doesn't do any one of those. He's gracious and loving and kind. And he, he says, I'll give you a king. I'll choose you a king. And last week we heard how um, a man called Saul, just going on an everyday donkey hunting errand, was accosted by the prophet of God, this same Samuel, and told that God had chosen him to be the next king, Israel's first king. So Saul and Samuel know what's coming. They know who the next king's going to be. But for everyone else, it is hot off the press news. They're all gathered waiting. The lots are being drawn. God's way of narrowing down who the king's going to be. First, it's the tribe of Benjamin. Oh, it's from that tribe. Okay. Next, the clan of the Matrites. Whoever they were, they were feeling quite lucky at the moment. Then, son of Kish, one of Kish's sons. And then finally, it's Saul. Everyone is on the edge of their seats. It's finally been named. This is the new king. And of course, Saul already knows this, so he's ready and waiting. Except that he's not. He is rather embarrassingly absent. They have to check with God, where is this Saul, this son of Kish? And God has to tell them, well, actually, he's, he's hiding in the baggage. Where they go and run, and they bring him out from there. What on earth is he doing there? He knew he was going to be king. Now, we saw last week that Saul actually doesn't have a very high opinion of, of himself. When Samuel first told him he was going to be king, he said, look, I'm from a tiny, tiny tribe with a poor reputation. I can't be king. It's not a job for me. He was probably feeling like the word that was brought earlier, I'm not worthy. I can't be king. But Samuel had reiterated the fact that God had chosen him. God had said that he was going to be king, and so that should have ended it all. Except that it clearly hasn't. Here Saul is, still hiding in the baggage. Now, I wonder what was going through Saul's head. Surely he was thinking about his reputation, his tribe. Surely there was fear going through his head. What if I mess it up as a king? What if I'm announced as king and the people don't even accept me? Now, his tribe had a little bit of a, a murky recent past. They'd been involved in some horrible things, and... They were probably lucky even to be invited to this. Would they want a king from that tribe? Lots of things going through Saul's head. A thousand reasons, actually, why he shouldn't and couldn't be king. 
but I don't know whether you can relate to that, because I think there's a thousand reasons why any one of us shouldn't and couldn't step into the things God's called us to. A thousand reasons why we can't do the things he's called us to. We, obviously, not many of us in this room are destined for royalty, although if you are, I'd love to chat to you afterwards and find out <laughs> which country you've managed to <laughs> get yourself in line for. Um, <laughs> but we learn from the Bible that God has unique plans for us. He's called each and every one of us. He has works set apart from us from the, before the beginning of time that he has for us to walk into. Things that only we can do, plans to use us. And he calls us to those. But in ourselves, there can be a thousand and one reasons why we feel inadequate, unworthy. Maybe it's guilt at something that we've done. Maybe it's shame of things done to us, or perhaps of our family background. Maybe you're used to being looked down on. A thousand reasons why we shouldn't and couldn't do what God has called us to. But the fact is that we don't get the final say. And if God says he has called you to it, it's because he knows you, he made you, he's your maker. He knows exactly what you're called to do. And by the power of his spirit, he enables you to do it, even if you feel like it's impossible. Now, this isn't the world's way of dealing with our insecurities. We see in our passage, and uh, you'll see if you go on Facebook at any given time, that the world's way of, of helping you when you're feeling low about yourself is to give you a pep talk. Think positively. Mind over matter. Forget about the, ne the negatives. Ignore the haters. You are a star. Just be who you are. Which is all very nice for a moment. Um, and I'm sure it was lovely for Saul to be reminded of how tall he was and how handsome he was and how, therefore, what a good king he would make. But actually, I'm not sure that that really would have helped him. It's not what he needs to hear. He needs to hear the truth from the living God, his maker, who made him, and the one who empowers him, he needs to know from him that he is called. For me, personally, over the past months, God has been taking me to task over this. I've, um, I've, I've had him revealing to me over, over, over months as I've prayed and just considered the way I behave in certain situations and realized that actually I'm like Saul. I like to hide behind the baggage of my own insecurities. Yes, I might tentatively respond to God when he calls me to do things, but actually, I find it hard to walk confidently into the things that he's called me to. I've been reluctant to believe him when he said that I am called. And actually, he's been breaking that in me and teaching me to walk differently. Because although I've got 30 plus years experience of knowing how well I can mess things up and how insecure I can be at times, he's got an eternity of experience. He conceived of me in eternity. He made me, fashioned me. He knows exactly what I'm called to. He knows exactly what he's made me for. And he has the power to enable me to do it, even if I think it's impossible. I wonder if you could relate to that. If you ever find yourself similarly hiding behind the baggage of your insecurities. Maybe it stops you taking opportunities that God brings to you. Or maybe it stops you walking in the confidence that God really is using you, that he's not just using you until someone better comes along. He's actually got a plan for you. I believe that God would actually want to give some of us a loving shake this morning, say, come on, get up out of the baggage 
Your name's being called. I've got exploits for you to do, adventures for you to go on. Go on, come on, come with me. Follow me. But maybe you find one of Saul's other tactics of avoiding the call of God more tempting. You see, we, we read on and we find that um, as Samuel dismisses uh, all the people back to their homes, Saul also sneaks off home, not to go about his kingly duties, but to get himself behind his beloved plow. Now, you must, ima- you must imagine that Saul must have been quite a plowman. He's a tall, strong man. We know from previous chapters that he's wealthy. His family have got quite the farming business. They must have seen him in the fields, plowing away behind his sturdy oxen, and think, there goes a man who can plow. He's got success. He's probably earned plowman of the year, five years running. (laughs) And believe me, I'm sure all the young ladies thought, wow, one day I want a plowman like that. (laughs) He was a man of success. He had some ability. He'd enjoyed a comfortable, successful life. And that is good. And that is right for him. And that was exactly what his father in heaven had given him to do until now. Because actually, Saul, what are you doing plowing in a field? You've been called to be a king. There's nothing wrong with plowing in a field, but you have a calling that is different. Your calling has changed. You need to put down your plow and come about kingdom business. I don't know whether you can relate to that. I think all of us find our lives busy. Perhaps you have a busy job or a busy time serving in your spare time. And maybe you've found some success. You might not be top of your field, but, but you're good at this. You can do this. This feels comfortable. This feels right. This feels good. Perhaps it's something that God has called you to. And you've known his delight and his smile on you as you go about it. And if that is what God is still calling you to do, then go for it. Enjoy it. Enjoy his smile on you as you serve him in whatever sphere he's put you in. But there might be some people here today, like Saul, who know deep down that you've been called now to something else. Maybe something that God's been stirring in your heart. Maybe his plans for you are moving on. And he's calling you to put your plow down, step out of your comfort zone, and follow him. Come on, he says. We've got a kingdom business to attend to. Now, for Saul, going from a plowman to a king, in worldly um, eyes at least, was a kind of upward social mobility. You, can, you kind of wonder, why, why didn't he just put his plow down and get on with it? But for some of us, when God is calling us to something, it's not always into something more glamorous. It's sometimes into something that seems less worldly-wise, less attractive on the outside. But actually, it's something that you know that God has got for you to do, something of eternal value, something he's prepared for you to walk into. And he's saying, come on, we're about a kingdom business. Follow me. So Saul is busy plowing away and puts his plow down, comes down out of the field, and hears the sound of weeping. We're told that news has arrived in Saul's city. 
news of a terrible enemy. Now, Nahash the Ammonite was a horrific adversary. He didn't just attack and steal and kill. He maimed and humiliated. He had a habit of gouging out the right eyes of the, the fighting men of the city. And all those who had avoided that fate had gathered in a city called Jabesh Gilead for safety. Just imagine what it would be like to live in that region at that time. The pride of their city, their armies, their young men. They would pass them by, maybe, on the way to the marketplace as they went from village to village. And instead of heads held high, heads low, humiliated and ashamed, maimed. It, every time they saw someone like that, it would have been a reminder of this lurking enemy who is always there and who is too strong for them to defeat. Imagine the pressure, the distress over all those months. And then it finally comes to, to a head. Not satisfied just to taunt and torment them, he now marches on their last city to take it. Now, the, the strange thing is, is they don't do what would be obvious for the people of God to do in this situation. They don't call on God. It's clear that they've not only just rejected God as their king, but kind of forgotten him in any meaningful way. And instead, their first reaction is to go out and surrender, to beg for their lives. Now, Nahash, being the type of enemy that he is, he won't just accept them being his servants, as horrible as that would be. No, he's determined to humiliate them. Oh, yeah, he'll have them as their servants, but you've got to have all your eyes gouged out. He's determined to bring shame on the whole nation of Israel. And so in desperation, they finally think of another plan. They decide to call for help for Israel. Again, you wonder why they haven't done this before. After all, they are part of Israel. But there's a bit of a past for this city as well. See, there have been times in the past where all of Israel have been called out, their armies, to get a job done, to sort something out. And these guys were the ones who stayed at home, shirking their responsibilities. Maybe they thought, if we call on our brothers across Israel, maybe they won't come. Maybe we'll be met with silence. Or maybe they'll just remind us of the fact that, actually, you don't deserve us to come out for you. Where were you when we needed you? Reminded of their guilt. But in desperation, they do. They send messages, and they arrive at Gibeah. And when they get there, they're not met with action. They're met with weeping. Saul comes down, and remember this is the same Saul who was hiding in the baggage, the same Saul who was hiding behind his plow. He's not showing a lot of potential as a rescuing king, but something changes. God's spirit rushes on him, and when he hears the news of what Nahash the Ammonite has been doing, God gives him a holy anger. He is angry. He is cross, and he sends out a terrifying call to all the tribes of Israel, saying, come and fight. See, the people of Israel might have been naturally full of inaction, but God is on the move. And God goes out among the tribes to make sure that they respond to him. Soon there is an army gathered, and word is sent to Jabesh Gilead. Hope is on the way. Rescue is coming. 
Just imagine for them what that must have felt like. They expected silence. And now they know a rescuer is coming. They expected to be reminded that they didn't deserve a rescue. But instead, hope is coming. I can imagine one of the watchmen on the walls looking out beyond the enemy camp, maybe some glowing torches scattered across, vast on the hillside, and yet straining beyond that into the darkness, trying to see, has the rescuer come? Is our rescue here? Maybe as they listened, they could hear distant vibrations. Is that, is that the rumble of a marching army? Has it come? As the dawn begins to break, perhaps they could start to see the faint outlines of a great company of people, the army of Israel descending quickly upon them. And then in the middle, one man, head and shoulders above all the rest, the king. The king is coming. The rescuer is here. Very quickly, the Israelites split into three different companies and surround the enemies. They crush them, they defeat them. They leave only remnants of a battle. Suddenly, everything has changed. Suddenly, their oppression and their hurt and their fear is gone. There is no more threat. And suddenly they realize that they are under the protection of a king. Suddenly, they are part of a kingdom again. The king has come. I wonder in the days that, that passed after that, as they walked around, they would, would have learned to walk in a different way, with their heads held high, in confidence, they still would have had wounds. They still would have been reminded with the one-eyed soldiers. But instead of it being a reminder of a, an enemy that they can't defeat and of their own humiliation, it was now a reminder of a king who had rescued them. It was a reminder of their enemy's defeat and the fact that they were now under the protection of the king. They had a future. They almost certainly had other enemies to fight in the future. But they knew that if they needed help, the king would come. When they called, he would answer. And suddenly, that changed everything. They were answered by the full force of a king. See, this is probably one of Saul's finest moments as king. Not just because he responds to God and does the right thing as the king of Israel, but because he fulfills his ultimate purpose as a king who is a signpost to a better king. You see, Saul was never riding over that horizon, head and shoulders above the rest, just for the people of Jabesh Gilead. He was pointing to another king who would ride to the rescue. See, it's not only the people of Jabesh Gilead who need a rescuer. All of us need a king. All of us need a rescue. All of us find ourselves isolated, like the people of Jabesh, isolated from our God because of the things we've done wrong, because of our shame and our guilt, 
because we've rejected the king of heaven and thereby cut ourselves off from the life giver, leaving ourselves with just death. All All of us need a rescue. And actually, all of us, in isolating ourselves from the king, leave ourselves vulnerable to a very real enemy who wants to oppress and hurt and humiliate us. None of us, like we were reminded in our worship, deserve a rescue. None of us. And yet, in spite of all that, God, in his ferocious love, will not leave us be. When we call, he won't answer with silence. He won't answer with condemnation. He won't remind us of our guilt. But he comes marching into our lives with freedom and hope. See, God gives sin and death a beating. And he did that not just with the sword like Saul did, but he did it on the cross. You see, when our king of heaven came to earth, he came to earth as a flesh and blood king, just as we'd asked for, actually. A flesh and blood king, incognito, living a perfect life. And though he didn't deserve it, taking all our sin and our mess and our separation from God onto the cross and dying with it, taking it to the grave to leave it there. And then he rose again from death, breaking the power of death, our final and worst enemy, so that we could be free. So that we can be free from our oppression, so we can be free from our pain, so we can be free from our fear and our guilt and our shame, so we can be free of it. And so that we can be in his kingdom, in his family, under the protection of a king. So we can look into the future and say, no matter what has come, my greatest enemy has been defeated, and when I call, he answers me. I don't have to fear. I've got a future. See, I wonder whether you find yourself here this morning aware of your isolation from God or from people, feeling oppressed, guilty, or ashamed. Well, there's a king who will will answer when you call on him. He doesn't answer with silence. He doesn't answer with condemnation. He doesn't remind you of what you've done wrong. We know we don't deserve it. But his ferocious love for us means that he will not leave us hanging. He comes marching over into our lives. And actually, he's marching over the horizon into our lives this morning. Whatever you are facing, whatever enemy you are up against. He is here by his spirit with power to come and release you, to set you free, and to give you a future. And that's actually why we we gather here on a Sunday. We, We don't have any particular lack of biscuits or speaking or music at home, because that's what YouTube and internet shopping is for. We we gather because we are the family of God. We are the people, a kingdom people. And we gather together to celebrate him, to worship him. And there's a place for you here too. If you don't yet know him, if you don't yet know this king, there's a place in his family for you. And you can call on him this morning and leave knowing that your future is under the protection of a king. And finally... 
Just imagine the party that must have gone on in Jabesh that night. The dancing, the music, the, the eating, the drinking. It must have been amazing. It must have been something to behold. All that anxiety, all that fear that must have been built up over the months just dissolving away. All the disgrace and just the reserve melting away as they learnt to laugh again. A hilarious new freedom, no longer looking over their shoulders. They must have had quite a celebration. They still have had problems, but they knew they had a king. And he would, he would come when they called. And that's why we celebrate and sing. That's why we worship. That's why we make a fool of ourselves, sometimes dancing and singing and waving our arms. And that's what we're going to do now. We're going to celebrate him. We're going to worship him. We're going to enjoy the fact that he has rescued us, that he has set us free. We're like the people of Jabesh Gilead. That's exactly what our lives are like. I was oppressed. I was tormented. I was ashamed. I was in fear and guilt. But now he has rescued me. And I have freedom, and I have joy, and I have a hope for the future. And that same offer of freedom and joy and hope is there for you too. If you don't yet know him, then you can call on him. As we sing and as we celebrate, if you're not sure that you can say, I know this king, well, what a great chance to, to, to call out to him, maybe just even in the quiet of your own heart. Because we know he doesn't answer with silence and he doesn't remind you of your guilt but he comes loving and powerful into your life so that you can know him let's when we stand we're going to worship him just reach out to him in your heart he's your king and he's coming to you